and it elaborates on it and although you don't have a copy of it because we didn't make photographs of it I think it's important enough to um, discuss this particular discourse of the Buddha and maybe at some stage we can also let you have a photocopy of it It's called the Kaya Gata Sati Sutta. Now the word Sati is mindfulness again, and Kaya is the body. And Gata means gone to. So gone to the body, mindfulness Sutta. It's translated as mindfulness of the body, but literally translated it means gone to the body mindfulness and it starts out with thus have I heard again and on one occasion the blessed one was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove under Tapindika's Park this is an interesting spot it can be found today it is one of the spots that one visits when one does a pilgrimage to the Buddhist places in India. It's um, what we find there are ruins of the Kutis made out of bricks. One of them is purported to have been the Buddha's one. And the name of it is Jeta's Grove Anatapindika's Park. Now, Jeta was a prince, and Anatta Pindika was the multimillionaire, which I think I have mentioned him earlier. He was determined to make a monastery for the Buddha, and he went all over the place trying to find a suitable place, and he finally found a mango grove who belonged to Prince Jeta. It wasn't for sale, but Anita Pindika, first of all, being very rich and very determined, thought he'd just go and inquire. So he asked Prince Jeta whether he'd like to sell it to him, and Prince Jeta said no, he wasn't interested. And he went a second time, and again, Prince Jeta wasn't interested. And the third time when he went, Prince Jeta probably thought, we don't know this, but we can imagine, that he thought, well, there's this millionaire, and he's determined to buy this place of mine, this real estate. Well, maybe if I ask a huge sum, either he's going to become discouraged or he'll pay it. So he said, well, if you cover every inch of ground with a golden coin, I'll sell you the place. And Anita Pinika said, all right. So he asked his servants to bring wheelbarrow after wheelbarrow of golden coins to cover the ground of this substantial piece of real estate. 
It's not a small place at all. I've seen it, I've been there. And in the end, as the Pinnika ran out of golden coins, and there was a piece left, possibly the size of this room. And so Prince Yeta said, well, I'll give you a discount. <laughs> so he got his he got his monastery. This was the first monastery that the Buddha ever had. Until then, he'd been a wanderer. wanderer. Prince Jeta was not at all a Buddhist, but he became a bit curious about this um, immense expenditure that this Anasapindika had gone into to secure this place for the Buddha. So he came along to a few talks of the Buddha and also became convinced that this was truth. And he uh, donated sort of an archway for the entrance for this monastery. So it's an, quite an interesting um, story about Jeta's Grove, Anatta Pindika's Park. This place was always called Anatta Pindika's Park or Anatta Pindika's Monastery. And um, to this day, it's called that because he donated it. He was the great donor. And then we have an, an ex explanation how the bhikkhus um, were together and it's quite interesting because it gives us a bit of insight into their um, ways of dealing with things. A number of bhikkhus were sitting in the assembly hall one should think that that would be like a meditation hall, where they had met together on return from their arms round after their meal was over. Meanwhile, it was being said among them, it is wonderful, friends, it is marvelous how mindfulness of the body has been said by the Blessed One who knows and sees, arahant and fully enlightened, to be of great fruit, great benefit, when developed and repeatedly practiced. And then their talk, meanwhile, was left and finished, for the Blessed One rose from meditation now when it was evening, and he came to the assembly hall and sat down on a seat made ready. In other words, he stopped talking when the Buddha came. When he had done so, he addressed the bhikkhus thus, For what talk are you gathered here together now, bhikkhus? And what was your talk, meanwhile, which was left unfinished? Here, Venerable Sir, we were sitting in the assembly hall where we had met together on return from our arms round after our meal. Meanwhile, it was being said amongst us, it's wonderful, friends, it is marvelous how mindfulness of the body has been set by the Blessed One who knows and sees, arahant and fully enlightened, to be of great fruit, great benefit, when developed and repeatedly practiced. This was our talk, meanwhile, Venerable Sir, which was left unfinished, for then the Blessed One arrived. And now, this sutta is a complete repetition of the first sutta which we have uh, studied on the ways of practicing mindfulness of the body. Exactly the same thing again. However, it is important to recognize and realize that the Buddha found the mindfulness of the Buddha, uh, body 
particularly important. For instance, there is a saying in the um, in another discourse in the Anguttara Nikaya, where he says, "Because they do not savor the deathless, who do not savor mindfulness of the body, they savor the deathless, who savor mindfulness of the body." The word deathless is just another synonym for nibbana. Without mindfulness, without mindfulness altogether, we do not have direction for the mind. We allow the mind to do what it pleases. Now some people have intelligent minds and some people have easily concentrated minds and yet even those people are at the mercy of their minds unless they practice self-control and discipline their minds. Because a mind that is not trained and disciplined will do what it pleases. And we call a mind a magician. It can pull a rabbit out of any hat. It makes up stories about anything. So no matter what kind of mind we have, whether it is one which is imaginative, which has a lot of visions, which is intelligent, which is slow, which is fast, which is concentrated, which is not concentrated, doesn't matter. All minds have to practice mindfulness. Otherwise we do not have that guideline and that constancy in the mind which always brings us back to what is important. So here the Buddha makes an extra emphasis, puts extra emphasis on the fact that it should be mindfulness of the body. Now obviously watching the breath is also mindfulness of the body and that's how this Sutta again starts out mindfulness of the breath. And this is why watching the breath is one is a traditional way of um, the meditative practice. However, it is important to know and important to remember, and I have said these things before, but I will repeat them because I do know that the human memory is notoriously short and not exact, that no matter what kind of method we use. A method is a method by any name. We use the breath and the Buddha recommends using the breath. But that doesn't mean that that's the only recommendation he has. There is another sutta where he gives a description of 40 different meditation subjects. One of them being the breath. Now, we have already come across quite a number of other meditation subjects which are directed towards insight, which are repeated here again. I won't read them again because we have read them, and you do have that photocopy anyway, um, where we have the elements, where we have the nine channel grounds, where we have the movements that we make, and we have the bits and pieces that we consider of the bodily parts. All these are meditation subjects geared towards insight. However, that does not mean 
that one cannot become concentrated and quite calm when using any of them. It is possible, for instance, that one uses any one of these that I've just mentioned and gets a, some insight into their one's own body through them and because of that calm arises and this is exactly what happens in this Sutta <coughs> so again coming back to what I started out to say a method is a method by any name it will never be anything else except a method but we have the Buddha to thank for that that he is the one who has been instrumental and able to give us methods without methods we would never know what to do and that not only has he given us the methods that he has also given us the explanation what happens when we use the methods correctly so we can be extremely grateful for that it is although the practice of many of these things can be found um, in other uh, disciplines nowhere can there be found such an exact explanation in all detail and coming back to a method is a method I like to compare the method to a key now you've all heard me say that but I like to repeat it because I consider it very important if you want to unlock a door and you want to fit the key into the keyhole you have to hold the key steady long enough to make it fit into the keyhole that's holding on to the breath steady long enough you fit it into the keyhole and you unlock the door and you are in a mansion with eight chambers Obviously, once you've unlocked the door for that session, you certainly don't need the key again. You may need it next time if you've slammed the door shut. Having unlocked the door often enough, it usually stays open. One doesn't have to use the key again. But that comes from practice and that comes from a disciplined mind a mind that has as I've mentioned before recollected how it got into that mansion with the eight chambers so that it has a very definite pathway and doesn't have to search around in the dark So it starts out with the mindfulness on the, of the body on the breath again as we have already uh, heard and done which doesn't mean we can't be mindful of something else and it then mentions all those that I have already mentioned a moment ago but here as a different um, paragraph rather than the inside one that we knew in the first sutta where, we, where it was mentioned about the impermanence and watching the <coughs> breath just as breath it says this as he abides thus diligent, ardent and self-controlled there we are, self-controlled eh? 
His memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned. Now, this concerns monks and nuns who have left the household life. However, in a retreat situation such as this, this is what needs to be abandoned. Memories and ideas based on the household life. Anything that's got to do with one's ordinary way of life, all of that is detrimental to meditation. Who am I telling this to? It's got to be abandoned. It has no bearing on anything. Memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned. With their abandoning, the mind becomes settled in itself, quieted, brought to singleness and concentrated. So, simple, isn't it? That's what everybody wants. So, abandon the rest. That is how a bhikkhu develops mindfulness of the body. Not just a bhikkhu, anybody. These happen to happen to be uh, suttas, discourses of the Buddha to the bhikkhus. That's why he's called saying bhikkhu. But naturally, it concerns any meditator. Their household life is concerned with many details and many uh, memories and many wishes and many ideas and plans and hopes and regrets and desires and all the rest of it. And if we have that going, we can't get settled and concentrated. So the first thing is the breath, the second thing is the bodily movement, and um, of all kinds. Then the parts of the body. And again, this particular little paragraph, which I've just read about the banning the intentions and memories, is between, again, between each of those different methods. Then we have the elements. Then we have the channel ground, all the different channel grounds, nine of them. I shall not tractate your mind with those again. Blood and sinews, fleshless skeletons hand bones and foot bones and so on. I'm just trying to find the end of this story. So now, now having done any one of those, not necessarily all of them, any one of them, and has, and the mind has become um, settled and quieted, brought it to singleness and concentrated with the memories and intentions based on the household life abandoned, then because quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unprofitable dhammas, he enters upon and abides in the first jhana which is accompanied by initial and sustained application with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. The first piece of interest here is that the jhanas can arise from inside meditation because every one of these methods except watching the breath are inside methods so it doesn't matter what one does as long as one gets there 
So if the mind, for instance, is very quiet and still to start out with and feels happily uh, concentrated and has abandoned all the other stuff that's out there, certainly one can watch the breath and immediately enter into pleasant sensation. But if the mind is unruly and it does, and it's not, doesn't want to stay on the breath, doesn't want to do anything maybe, sometimes the mind just doesn't want to do anything. It just says, oh, I've had enough of this. I'm not going to get any enlightened anyway, so what to eat or something like that. <laughs> That's the time to pick any one of these inside methods. Any one of them. And you've got them all. If you haven't even written them down, they're all in that first Sutta, Satipatthana Sutta, which you have a copy. Any one of them. Doesn't matter. And if the mind is actually interested enough to investigate whichever one of the methods you have chosen, it will eventually come to one point. And as it does that, we have this aspect secluded from sensual desire, obviously, when we're concentrated we don't have, we have, don't have sensual desires secluded from unprofitable dhammas. What does that mean? What does unprofitable dhammas mean? Hmm. Yeah, and unprofitable? Negative thoughts. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. <laughs> right. So we're secluded from sensual desires and we're secluded from negative thinking, right? So we've got concentrated on whatever it is. Maybe we've got concentrated on our own skeleton. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. He enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by initial and sustained application. Well, the initial application is the method, right? Getting the mind going on whichever method we have chosen. That's our initial application to the meditation subject. And the sustained application means we can stay on it. With happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. Now, instead of saying that it's rapture or delight, it says happiness and pleasure. We can um, use the word pleasure here so that we don't get confused with the happiness which comes later. And the word seclusion again means that the mind is secluded. It doesn't mean you have to sit in a cave, but you're very welcome to do so. There are caves down here, and you are welcome to use them and sit as secluded as you can make it. But it doesn't mean that. It means secluded from sensual desire. It means that the mind is in its proper place. Now, one of the things which we have to learn through meditation, and I'm sure everybody learns that, is that we can actually direct the mind. We don't have to accept it the way it is. Because if we were to have to accept it the way it is, we would be able to become purified. We wouldn't be able to become enlightened. If we were to accept the way it is and never change it to where we want it to be, then the whole part would be blocked. It's not an automatic evolution, although some people thought like that. It is a deliberate practice. There's an important point which is sometimes misunderstood. 
Is this quite clear? Okay. So we have this seclusion. We have the initial and sustained application. Now, again, it's of interest to know. I think I have mentioned it already, but I'll mention it again that the initial application is our remedy for sloth and torpor. Again and again we put the mind on the meditation subject no matter what it may be so that we do not get into the inertia the one that was mentioned in yesterday's sutta where we had eleven um, imperfections of the mind which obviously all block the successful meditation, one of them being inertia. Initial application is the counteraction for that, just sitting there and doing it. And if the mind doesn't want to, to keep on saying, come on, do it, this is the right time, in other words, give oneself a better talk about it. And the sustained application is the factor which shows us that we can do it, which arouses confidence, which is the counteraction for that uncertainty which was mentioned yesterday as one of the eleven imperfections. And here we have the way to do it. Now, when the initial application on when any one of these uh, inside methods has been used, and one has actually been able to stay on it, the sustained application, to then switch from that to the um, factor, to the pleasure factor in the first jhana, the initial application will be very minor. It will only be that moment of switch when the pleasant sensation happens. It is a sustained application which is then of much greater importance. So we have here the initial application, which is all of the breath, and then the sustained application, which stays on the breath, but which will then have to be switched over to the, in the first jhana, pleasant, pleasant sensation, which is mentioned as pleasure here, just a matter of, of translation. Clear? All clear? All right. Yeah. The people that don't teach or talk about the jhana, how is that word pleasant? I wouldn't have a clue. I don't know what they're doing. People who don't teach jhanas, I don't know. I never, I never ask other people what they're teaching. They're also polite enough not to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're just sort of having a superficial conversations, I suppose. It's happening. All right. First, first jhana is quite clear, uh, pleasant sensation. So in another discourse, which we may come across later, um, it's this one, isn't it? 81. Just a minute, I have to look at the number. No, it's 85. Um, the Buddha says, this is a pleasure I will allow myself, the jhanas, right? So now, having got that far, 
the Buddha now explains how one um, deals with this. Having got to the first jhana, now how do we deal with it? And he gives a very nice uh, simile um, um, for it, which is um, totally without any application to our lives anymore. Such things do not exist anymore. But yet, it makes it quite clear what he's talking about. He makes, now he explains what happens in the first jhana. He makes happiness and pleasure born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill, and extend throughout his whole body. So this already gives one an indication that this is a physical sensation, right? Goes out through the whole body. So that there is nothing of his whole body to which the happiness and pleasure born of seclusion do not extend. Now comes the metaphor, the simile. Just as a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice heaps bath powder in a metal basin and sprinkling it gradually with water, kneads it up till the moisture wets his ball of bath powder, soaks it and extends over it within and without, though it does not itself become liquid. So too a bhikkhu makes happiness and pleasure born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill and extends throughout his whole body so that there is nothing of his whole body to which the happiness and pleasure born of seclusion do not extend. Now this is an in, uh, a little, in, uh, little in, a bit of interest there because this is what apparently um, one used to do when one took a bath. One took bath powder, put it in a metal basin and sprinkled it gradually with water and then had to knead it until the moisture wet this ball of bath powder and soaked it and extended through it but did not itself become liquid. So the bath powder would not become liquid but it would just be completely soaked with water. One could think maybe also of um, uh, flour that one makes into dough. This would be more common with us than bath powder that we were kneading. So, but it's the same idea. So it's just a, um, I always find these historical references how people used to live in those days uh, of interest because it makes a sort of gives us a connection to it. What was going on then? So this has to drench one completely. Yeah? Any questions on this? Quite clear. Which John is this the first, first one? one? And I'm not. I'm confused. Initial and sustained application are separate from the income, or That's how you start. You've got to sit down and do it. That's initial application. Okay. Sustained application means you're staying on the breath. Okay. Right. And then. Yeah, but this is always said that initial and sustained application as part of the first jhana. Okay, so it's all part. And again, we have that same uh, paragraph. Um, they don't uh, reprint it. I have to go back to it. Um,
After the jhana comes a paragraph, as he abides thus diligent, ardent, and self-controlled, his memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned. Now, of course, having the first jhana, um, it's a little easier to abandon those because you've got something else, which is far preferable. Um, with the abandoning, his mind becomes settled in himself, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. This is how bhikkhu develops mindfulness of the body. So even though now we are in the jhanas, Buddha still talks about mindfulness of the body. Now, again because with the stilling of initial and sustained application, he enters upon and abides in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without initial application and without sustained application, with happiness and pleasure born of concentration. You can maybe already imagine what it's like when you try to go through this without a teacher and try to understand what it's all about. Um, because it says the same thing over and over again, but it doesn't mean the same thing. Um, now in the second jhana, of course, the initial application is no longer necessary because you're concentrated now. And the sustained application is also no longer uh, necessary because the mind is already in that field, so to say. It's already entered upon the um, a switch in consciousness. So he goes to second jhana, and second jhana brings self-confidence and a singleness of mind. In other words, in the second jhana, the mind is, um, of course, much more strongly concentrated, but it brings self-confidence. and which doesn't have the initial and the sustained application and it has happiness in it um, because the first one was called pleasure uh, again it would have been better if it had been translated as the pleasure of the sensations the physical sensations or the rapture of the physical sensations and this one here the happiness of the emotion joy right now the important part of the second one and that's why one should not skip it not let the mind skip over it is first of all the discipline of the mind one only becomes master of the jhanas when one can do every one of them at will at any time go from one to four from four to eight from eight to six from six down to two and that is only possible if one has initially done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Not missed out on any of them. Obviously, they become more and more refined as we go along, and yet each one has a particular purpose. The first one, where I had already explained what initial and sustained application does for us, however, the rapture, the delight, the PT, physical sensation, counteracts our ill will. It's impossible to have ill will when one feels well. Now, not only does it do that during the meditation period, it always has a residue. Every state of mind that we ever have had has had a residue. 
any state of mind that we now have has a residue. They're all residual bits and pieces within, which sometimes come up through memory. So this has a residue, and it gives us also an insight, a very simple one, which most people never pay attention to. Namely, the fact that when we feel well, we can't be angry. So anyone who is angry, has hate and ill will, must not be feeling well. So, compassion. No use to have anger then at that angry person or upset person. They can't be feeling well. Because we have already noticed within ourselves that when we really have this delightful sensation, it's impossible to be angry. And only when we have had this personal experience do we know it. Until then, we can agree to it. But only when we do it ourselves are we fully convinced. And that's why we need to go into every one of these steps. Now the first one obviously, and this is not mentioned here, but it is mentioned in the Sudhimaga, which is a path of purification, not by the Buddha, but by the Nabuddha Gosa from the 5th century. It is mentioned like this, that when we have experienced the first one, which has this pleasant sensation, we are quite uh, easily convinced that this is still a gross state, that we are not meditating for the purpose of pleasant sensation and are therefore willing and eager to give it up in preference for the pleasant emotion, which is joy. So although this pleasant sensation is still around, it doesn't just disappear and change into joy, we are quite willing to let go of it so that we can experience the joy. To experience the joy which is emotional is a logical cause and effect uh, progression. When there is this delightful sensation within the body which drenching us from head to toe, obviously we must feel joy. There's no other way we could possibly feel. In the second jhana, people often have the sensation as if they're smiling. In fact, they feel sometimes they come out of it on purpose because they think I must be looking terribly stupid because I'm smiling like this. But in reality, it is more an inner smile than an outer smile. I have never yet seen anybody look stupid who wasn't second jhana. It's a sort of a relaxed look. <laughs> So with the second one, we have joy. Now, that is important for many reasons, and that's why we shouldn't skip any of these things. Also, if we want to really perfect this and have it at our disposal at any time, all of them need to be there, and they are all there. It's just that sometimes the mind becomes impatient and says, oh, I don't want all these pleasant things. I want not what I'm here for. I want to be enlightened. So I want to go deeper, and I want to go deeper, and a little deeper yet, and skips on these. Uh, along those um, steps. 
and does not um, experience them. That's not a wise thing to do. First of all, impatience is never, never wise. Joy has a very distinctive result, that inner joy. It brings the insight of knowing that whatever is out there in the world, it cannot compare to that what's inside of oneself. We no longer have to search for that stuff that they supposedly got out there that we could have if we had enough money or enough time or enough energy or enough intelligence to find it. We no longer have to look. We've got something within that is of much greater import and impact on us and has a totally different result. Because what's outside is based on sense contact and what's inside is based on concentration. And since contact is not under our jurisdiction, whereas concentration is. It's still a condition, but at least it is a condition which we ourselves can arouse. We are no longer victims to the prevailing circumstances, the outer conditions. We are only victim to our unruly mind, and there we've got a say in the matter. I'm waiting for the bookkeeping to... <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> now, with that joy, because it is, so to say, self-generated, self-confidence arises. This is not a feeling of superiority or importance. That's not self-confidence. Self-confidence is a feeling of being able to be independent. Only a person who is independent can be self-confident. As long as we are dependent on other people, on outer conditions, on anything at all that we consider the important to keep so long we are a slave to that particular condition no matter what it is. The minute we see that our joy arises independently whether we have a good job, whether we've got a good husband or a good wife, whether we even got good food, whether we've got a good house, it makes absolutely no difference. All we have to do is have some good concentration, and it does arise, we have an independence of the world. And it can no longer attack us in the way it has done in the past. It has, obviously it still will have impact on us, but it doesn't have the same sting to it anymore. As if, as, as if we had grown a bit of a shield around us, which is not to say that that shields our loving kindness and compassion, on the contrary. The loving kindness and compassion grows in equal proportion to that independence because we can now see the difference which we were 
experiencing before we had that and now we know the before and after so knowing the before and after our compassion for those who only know the before until now have of course grown quite clear or any questions Although the Buddha makes the strongest possible case for the jhanas over and over again, I still feel called upon to strengthen the case. <laughs> because for the simple reason that his explanations are extremely short and um, he does not go into elaborate detail on them. Although he mentions them over and over again, there are especially in the middle and sayings which these are Majjhima Nikaya uh, three volumes but not all of them in there actually uh, innumerable suttas that contain them the exact explanation can be found in the Visuddhimagga the path of purification where it is um, in very very minute detail the Buddha does not go into this enormous detail now again, he gives a simile for the experience of the second jhana, which is also very nice and helpful to know and read, because sometimes when one is not very used to them yet or not proficient at them, one may be at, um, um, in doubt what one is, how should one deal with it. Now, he makes, I'm just going to say happiness, he makes happiness born of concentration, drench, steep, fill and extend throughout this body and there's nothing of has no inflow from east, west, north or south, no inlets, and doesn't have any rain coming in, gives us the picture, the visual picture of the joy, the happiness arising from within, nothing coming at us from anywhere. It doesn't come through eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body or mind, it just comes from the concentration and arises out of that. There is no outer inflow, outer input into the uh, joy in that we experience. That the lake has no openings anywhere. And again, the joy, the happiness, should extend throughout the body. Now, that's also interesting, because very often, people experience this joy coming from the spiritual heart sort of the middle of the chest like a thing um, 
in order to make the second jhana complete, that feeling of joy should extend from head to foot. According to the Buddha's instructions, and it would also make it more complete because it would be a, uh, a stronger aspect. Now, obviously, sometimes also the rapture, the physical, and the emotional joy, both of them are mild, and other times they are strong. It doesn't matter. It's um, naturally the better the concentration, the stronger they get. The um, Self-confidence is an important aspect and the letting go of the uh, searching for joy outside of us. But there's another important uh, result from the joy of the meditation. The residue. The uh, residue which is retained in the mind of a buoyant and joyful interior being. It's very difficult to become depressed. In fact, I should think it's impossible when you can do the jhanas. I couldn't imagine that that is possible. I've never yet met anybody who has managed that because it is the exact opposite. It is also much easier not to worry and not to um, uh, fear. All these are counteracted by the joy of the Sanjana. All quite clear or some questions? Yes? Um, what is in For the same person, different situations may occur. And in one sitting, they may have to go back to the breath because it just won't work any other way. But another time, all they have to do is just have a little push behind the mind and it just goes right back in. Either way. Anything else? Actually, that is so. The uh, uh, physical sensation is still present, 
but the mind needs to attend to the emotional And what the Buddha is describing here is more um, an experience where the joyfulness, well, I doubt very much that you're going to feel it in your big toe, but um, where the joyfulness is not so um, limited that you just feel it here and nowhere else. It's more that you can feel it as, a, as if your whole being is joyful. The attention has to be on the emotional feeling and not on the sensation. The sensation supports the emotional feeling and it's still there, it supports it. Well, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible for anyone who has uh, any proficiency in the jhanas, in other words, can go back to it, uh, would have any way of having a mind that goes, gets depressed. But if, if uh, someone would go out of the world again and not being able to get into the jhanas... Oh, yeah, then it would be very depressed. Again, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Especially depressed because <laughs> they get more depressed than anybody else because they already know what they could do and now they can't. And that would is always a very uh, a difficult thing. But you see, there's another consolation for that. If one has once been able to do them and understands how to get in, well, this is an absolute necessity. How to, uh, to understand how to get in and practice it every day there's no way you're going to lose it but these are the ifs if you know how to get in and if you practice every day there's no way to lose it because it is a faculty of the mind just like you've never lost um, doing the um, uh, additions and subtractions in your mind you can still do that learned it many years ago at least I learned it many years ago I can still do it it's just a faculty of the mind so one has to know how to do it right once you know how to do it and you don't completely give it up there's no way you're going to lose it but it has to be practiced not something you can just let go. Yes. Um, when the mind is being purified, does it suffer from the similar kind of symptoms as when the body is? Like when the traditional when the body is being purified, it tends to, you know, maybe unpleasant things come out in the body as a result of the purification process. Does this happen with the mind too? Well, what do you call, call the purification of mind in this instance? Well, that's the purification of mind through the concentration. No, what happens is you can compare 
physical fasting um, where sometimes the body if it isn't used to this sort of thing reacts with some unpleasantness you can compare that to um, intensive meditation retreat where it's supposed to be quiet that's mental fasting and that can if you don't practice the jhanas diligently um, more than once or twice a day that can create unpleasant feelings yes and that's why people run away from such things You see what I'm getting at about the, when, when the purification process is underway and things tend to come out that perhaps have been hidden for some time. Um, when they come out, that's what I'm really asking. Is, mm. that, is this a, a part of the characteristic of early meditation? Well, it's not a characteristic of the jhanas. It's a characteristic of insight meditation. Things do not come up from the jhanas, they come up from inside meditation. Yes, yes. Not during the jhanas, but Certainly you know, not. everyday life, I mean, yes. coming out at other times. Well, if one sees them coming up, something that one has hidden before, and one is able to observe it objectively and let it disappear again, one is most likely rid of it. But if one reacts to it with either delight or disgust, one starts all over again. The same circle again. The circular motion. I like it, I don't like it. Whatever, either way. Which is how it got hidden in the first place. Yeah. Specifically if we didn't like it. We hide that away and we don't like it and we don't want to know about it and uh, let's just forget the whole thing and then when it comes up and again we don't like it same story over again but if we can look at it and say "Uh uh-huh nothing but a mental uh, concomitant of any one of the four kinds it has arisen and it will again vanish and we do we are totally objective towards it and do not feel involved and identified with it then we have let go of it. Anything else? I'll just go to the next one. Well, again, after the second jhana, he uses that same little paragraph about as he abides thus diligent, ardent, and self-controlled, his memories and intentions based on the household life are abandoned. With their abandoning, his mind becomes settled in himself, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. That is how a bhikkhu develops mindfulness of the body. Now, what is happening between each of the jhanas, obviously one abandons memories and intentions ever more, and so the mind becomes more quiet, more single-pointed, one-pointed, and more concentrated, so that the third and the next jhana can then arise. So this is, one could say, the paragraph of the transition. Now, when one does a jhana, some people are aware of transition, some people are not. Being aware of transition is fine, not being aware of them is also fine, it doesn't matter. 
the transition moment is mind moments they are not of any length of time the transition moment can be that the mind recognizes that it has been in one state and is now going to another it's sort of moving towards and that moving towards then falls into being in that state not everybody knows that feels it not, ne- not necessary but it's so also very good now again because with the fading as well of happiness he abides in equanimity and mindful and fully aware still feeling pleasure with the body he enters upon and abides in the third jhana on account of which the noble ones announce he has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity and is mindful so with the third jhana it starts to be a pleasant abiding the first two are considered to be just the entry halls you've got to get in there and sit down in the living room obviously the first one is the entry hall the uh, PT, the rapture the second one um, sort of the study and then the third one is the living room where you can actually sit down in a nice armchair and enjoy yourself so that's a pleasant abiding the fading away of the happiness I like to use it as joy huh? fading away of joy he abides in equanimity now the word equanimity is here used for the third one I use it for the fourth one because it becomes too confusing we have to have a bit more identification system our minds are used to identification systems and unless we have that we do not have the exactness of the practice the practice has to be exact it should never um, deteriorate into a a potluck situation or a happy-go-lucky affair this is a very distinct practice which has as its results elevated states of consciousness so we need to know exactly what we're doing which means we have to have the understood experience which we if we have an experience and we don't understand it it doesn't do us any good so I like to say about this that it's a fading away of the joy and a contentment arises so one is mindful and fully aware and there's still pleasure with the body now because the contentment is a more of a bland nature it's totally bland it doesn't have any of the joyfulness and the rapture of the first two one is still aware in this state that the body feels very well which in the fourth one completely disappears however the attention has to be on the contentment there's another differentiation which one could mention here and that is that rapture the first one joy the second one have a certain excitement with them whereas the third one the contentment has a feeling as if the mind has falling has fallen into a bit of a well it's not a very deep well yet but it has sort of, sort of gone down it doesn't of course but the excitement has disappeared 
and very often uh, one has to do that deliberately because the mind has a sticky quality unfortunately all unenlightened minds are sticky which is upadana which is our being stuck to clinging and we're clinging to all sorts of things of course we're clinging to joy <clears throat> especially if we haven't had much before that we're going to cling to it like you know so we might have to actually let go of it in order to fall into the contentment now the contentment of course arises in a logical progression because we got finally what we wanted we wanted joy so we got it and now we're contented at this stage in the third one we are not looking for anything we are quite contented and it is a state where the excitement of the first two has subsided while the body is still feeling very well and has a, a pleasurable sensation it is nothing compared to the first one which was very strong here it's very very mild and just now he has a pleasant abiding, abiding. and again here is a, a simile for what one should do with this state of affairs here now and it is unfortunately translated he makes pleasure in can't do anything with that translation okay he makes contentment divested of happiness drenched steep filling extends throughout the body and there is nothing of his whole body to which the contentment divested of happiness does not extend just as in a water lily pond or a white lotus pond or a red lotus pond some water lilies or white lotuses or red lotuses are born under the water, grow under the water, do not stand up out of the water, flourish immersed under the water, and cool water drenches deep fills and extends throughout them to their tips and to their roots, and there is nothing of the whole of those water lilies, those white lotuses, those red lotuses, to which the cool water does not extend, so too the bhikkhu makes contentment divested of happiness drenched steep fill and extend throughout this body and there is nothing of this whole body to which pleasure sorry contentment divested of happiness does not extend the translator has used the words pleasure and happiness which makes it so conclu confusing that we can't really use it because we've had that already in the second one so uh, we have to have this feeling that there is actually a difference and it is quite marked in the practice of it one can feel a difference um, I sometimes compare that with uh, going into a warm bathtub and being completely immersed in it and very contented because it is a pleasurable thing situation now the joy has, uh, has made that contentment arise the pleasurable situation has not totally vanished but we do not put our attention on it we put our attention on the contentment 
So that's why it says here, divested of happiness, divested of pleasure, one should say, and he compares it, the Buddha compares it to the water lilies which are growing under the water and are completely immersed in that water. Now, two things that are to be remembered which are not mentioned here and which are important to talk about and uh, recognize the fact that whenever one is finished with the meditation, not between each stage, but whatever, whatever stage one finishes at, whether one finishes at number one, two or three, doesn't matter, one recognizes the fading away of the pleasant state, even though it may not fade completely immediately, but one can thereby get a personal experience of impermanence of pleasant states. We are perfectly happy to have unpleasant states disappear. No problem at all. We watch them with glee. But when the pleasant states disappear, that's when we have to become mindful. Now, when the mind has been very much um, concentrated and in these uh, states which have been described, it does not mind watching the disappearance. It does not have any objection because it feels contented. In the very first one, if one hasn't been in it long enough, the mind is apt to say, oh, what a pity it's gone again. I wonder if I can get it back. Well, that's obviously clinging. And that is counterproductive to insight. The seeing of the impermanence without saying, oh, what a pity, I'd like to have it back, is much more productive of having the concentration and the stillness of mind to bring it back. In the third one, is no problem. The mind's contented, it's going to look at anything and say, oh, well, that's okay. That's disappeared. The second step before opening the eyes is the recollection, the recap. How did I get in there? That cannot be stressed often enough. For that, we have an established pathway where we all we have to do is sit down and maybe a few breaths in order to unlock that door again or the door remains open. If the door one day remains open, this can be done in the middle of Martin Square. No problem. If one wants to do it. And there may be occasions when one does. It doesn't mean, now in the very first one, in the... Uh, just in the pity and the delightful sensation that doesn't mean that one doesn't function in the world it's very simple to function even with that in fact it's much easier to function uh, the uh, next two become a bit deeply engrossed uh, absorbed and the functioning in the world would be impaired so that's not very uh, not much that's not to be recommended so, um, but if we have our pathway, we will find our personal trigger. And whether that's breath, 
or whether that's <coughs> words or whether it's a bodily uh, posture it can be a body posture or whether it is having slept more or less having eaten more or less preferably probably less um, whether it's a certain time of the day all of these things have an influence some of them some of the influence may be strong enough to make the uh, jhanas arise some of the influences may just be weak so therefore if one hasn't found one's pathway yet one has to consider all aspects which have anything to do with that particular meditation period when the jhana factors did arise it may one just be one of those um, uh, situations which had any bearing on it but we'll have to try that out until we find the one now very often people can be triggered by a loving kindness meditation some people who have devotion can be triggered by thinking of the Buddha and his wonderful teaching some people can be triggered by gratitude some people can be triggered by recognizing that all is impermanent some people can be triggered by sitting differently everybody has to find their personal trigger sometimes maybe the breath has to be done heavily or sometimes the breath has to be done very lightly it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what kind of key one uses as long as one unlocks the door none of the keys have to have any particular um, manifestation about them they're all just as good as the next one so that's the third one we had the third one here okay we'll do the fourth one tomorrow and see what else there is in this particular sutta about the mindfulness on the body because it goes on after the fourth one there's more more about the mindfulness on the body and um, it's an interesting aspect that the Buddha has um, put particular emphasis on the body and if you examine that why you will find that when you look at yourself that's me everybody knows exactly what they look like and who me is and what is that that's body that then all the other stuff arises too which has to do with mind is taken for granted first this has to be me if this is me all the rest of the stuff isn't me either so this is our very first um, process of identification even though everybody knows they're going to die makes no difference just ask anybody whether they're going to die and they're going to say yes that's a stupid question of course I'm going to die and what are they going to do about it? nothing not a thing the identification process remains and this is why the Buddha put so much emphasis on this attention and investigation through those inside methods on the body which as you can see lead us to the jhanas just like anything else depending on what sort of 
inclination the mind has. Some people do have that inclination for investigation into these insight methods. Other people have the inclination to um, just stay on the breath. Whichever one, doesn't matter. Are there any questions? Everything perfectly clear, that's wonderful. So we can all do it, obviously, also. Maybe. <laughs> Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Let love and compassion arise in your heart. The warmth of love, the caring of compassion. Feel those two in yourself, for yourself. Now let the warmth of love and the care of compassion reach out to everyone here. Fill everyone from head to toe with those feelings coming from your heart. love and the care and understanding 
of compassion. Reach out to all your loved ones. Fill them and surround them with these feelings from your heart. feeling of love and the protective feeling of compassion reach out to all your friends and relations filling them and embracing them with these feelings from your heart Think of all the people you've ever known or seen anywhere at all. And reach out to them the same feeling of love and compassion as you have for your loved ones. Try not to make any difference. Fill them and surround them with a completeness coming from your heart.
Now let the warmth of your love and the feeling of togetherness, of compassion, grow and expand. Pour out of your heart. an ever-widening stream touching people near and far giving the gift from your heart as far as it will reach direct those same feelings towards yourself be filled and surrounded by them feeling at ease and well protected and safe beings everywhere have love and compassion for each other. <laughs> 